1: This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1861, Stephen Dodson Ramser was 24 years old, a hot secessionist, a West Point-trained military officer, a slaveholder, and a fervent Christian. In other words, the quintessential young Southern gentleman. Over the next three years, he would serve as native North Carolina and the Confederacy, as the commander of an artillery battery, an infantry regiment, a brigade, and eventually a division as a young Major General. He would fall in love with and marry his cousin, and he would write a fascinating series of letters to family and friends before he suffered a mortal wound at Cedar Creek in 1864. We can't meet Stephen Ramser on this earth, but we can do the next best thing and meet George G. Kundal, editor of The Bravest of the Brave, The correspondence of Stephen Dodson Ramser, today on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio.
2: Wanna know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network?
0: Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. This is Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. The third floor of the Brewster Building, looking out over nothing. The windows closed today, but it's a nice uh, autumn afternoon in October 2012 from the headquarters of Civil War Talk Radio. But as always, not speaking for East Carolina University or the History Department or the College of Arts and Sciences or anything else on campus. Uh, it's my own show. I'll speak for myself. My guest, likewise, will do the same thing and we'll talk to you today about uh, Civil War history as we see it. We'll be talking with a number of other guests in the weeks ahead. We had a few, uh, uh, there were a few weeks where there were no new things appearing on www.impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War companion, Civil War talk radio companion website. Uh, but we'll get that updated shortly when I get the information to, uh, the, the webmaster Mark Gaffney who does an excellent job with that site, uh, every uh, every show putting up uh, links to the new ones and letting you know who's going to be on. Next week's show is, uh, for October 12th is still in limbo, but we have a couple, uh, good possibilities, but I'll, uh, we'll save that. That can be a surprise. But in the weeks to follow, October 19th, uh, Douglas Edgerton, author of Year of Meteors will be with us to talk about the 1860 election. There have been a number of requests to have him on, and I'm happy to say he's agreed to do it, so we'll be talking with him. We'll have a return visit from Brian Steele Wills, who has uh, made his name originally with a biography of Nathan Bedford Forrest, has a relatively new biography from this past year of George Henry Thomas, so we'll be talking, uh, with, uh, Brian about, uh, George Thomas on October 26th. November 2nd, Brian Dirk will be with us. Brian Dirk from, uh, Anderson College in Indiana has written a, uh, really interesting new book called uh, Abraham Lincoln and White America. Uh, it's Regardless of what you think from the title, it's probably not what you think. And uh, I, I certainly enjoyed this book and will be happy to talk to uh, Professor Dirk about that. On November 9th, we have Gail Stevens, author of a biography of Lou Wallace, the author of Ben-Hur and also, of course, uh, commander of a division at Shiloh. There have been a couple biographies of Wallace, uh, but Stevens looks to be the most authoritative, and we'll be talking with her about that. On November 16th, if I'm not going to the Lincoln Forum, and that's up in the air, we'll have Bobby Horton playing Civil War music for us. And if, if the Lincoln Forum thing does come through, we'll reschedule him, uh, hopefully for later this fall, maybe November 30th. After Thanksgiving, uh, one more show then before the semester break at the end of the year and we'll have john jakes the author of the legendary north and south uh, books from the 1970s i believe joining us Uh, so that should be very interesting looking forward to having him on the show and to reading those books so lots of things coming up Uh, please join us for future shows you can support the purchase of some of these authors books by buying them uh, go to the website, www.impedimentsofwar.org, find links to these books, and I don't know if we get a penny when you click on it or not, but regardless, uh, go through those links to find out where the books are, and you can get them for yourself. You can also get uh, my books, All for the Regiment, or Did Lincoln Own Slaves, with a $20 donation we're undercutting amazon desperately when we do this. uh $20 donation to the show. There's a PayPal button on the uh on the site and that money is used by me to do the same thing you're doing to buy books, the books that I talk about here on the show and uh, sometimes some of it goes to support the website, some of it goes to buy new bandage for my right ankle which I tweaked once again playing soccer last weekend. Uh, how long I will persist in the fantasy that I'm a young man who can run about uh, on the fields each weekend. I don't know, but there's a new injury every week. This week, it's the right ankle. So, maybe your, your donation goes to a new Ace Bandage. Maybe it goes to a new biography of Lou Wallace. There's no way of knowing. Uh, and that's why it's not tax deductible. So, so, don't make that mistake, whatever you do. Well, Today we're talking uh, about Stephen Dodson Ramser, Confederate general, uh, and uh, a, a prolific letter writer. Our guest is the editor of uh the published correspondence, uh, a book called The Bravest of the Brave, The Correspondence of Stephen Dodson-Ramser. And that editor is Major General George G. Kundal, United States Army, retired, uh, who has also served as a senior government executive and is currently researching not the Civil War but the Second World War uh, campaigns in France. Uh General Kundal, welcome to the show. Are you there?
3: I'm here. Glad to be uh, on
1: glad glad to have you um we you and i got to talk by phone just a little bit last week uh so so we're not we're not yet personally close but i hope we could go by first names if you don't mind calling me jerry it will save a lot of time with the, the long last that's, name
3: that's fine with me uh
1: well well thank you uh very much for being on your dust jacket says uh, first of all you you served in the military uh Tell our, our audience a little bit about your uh, career, if you would.
3: Well, I had a, a bifurcated career. I'm I'm uh, trained as a uh, political scientist at the uh, graduate level. I have a doctorate in political science, but I also majored in, in European history as an undergraduate at Davidson College. Um, I served in the federal government. Uh, my most uh, important positions were as the Executive Director of the Securities and Exchange Commission from 1981 to 1990, and as a Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary to uh, Dick Cheney when he was uh, Secretary of Defense from 1990 to 1993. Uh, after that, I was Chief of uh, Staff of the Military Order of the World War and during this uh, a lot of this period i also was in the army reserve i originally served on active duty of course and uh, retired in 1996 as a major uh, general
1: Wow, it's quite uh, an impressive resume. So you were with the Cer- Securities Exchange Commission, uh, y- you said, uh, that twenty years ago. Now we cannot hold you to blame for what happened in two thousand eight. Then
3: uh, no, you can't. And really, I'm I'm more prepared to talk about uh, Dodson-Ramser than I am about <laughs> the uh, the mistakes of the SEC over the past two decades.
1: Well, that that's many of us find a certain uh, relief looking at the past. So we're going to do exactly that today. Um, you uh, you went to davidson college uh here in north carolina and ramser of course is a north carolinian you and i talked about that briefly i'm actually from michigan i'm just uh carpetbagging here at east carolina university uh but did didn't the north carolina do you have a north carolina col- connection besides your education
3: i do not no
1: so so how did you come by Stephen ramser then
3: i have a friend who uh was aware that the Ramser letters were a rich uh source of material in the Civil War. Uh Gary Gallagher, as you may know, wrote his uh doctoral dissertation, which then became a book in the nineteen eighties on on Ramser. Uh and he got to to Ramser from a quote that uh uh Southall Freeman uh put in, in uh one of his books that the letters were a quote, large, fine series. And uh, Galger had always wanted to uh, uh, transcribe and, and uh, publish the letters, but never got around to it. My friend started down that road and for various reasons couldn't go very far. And uh, I offered first to help him and then uh, said, hey, I'll do it by myself and, uh, and did so. Uh, and as I got into it and realized, and I didn't at the outset that Ramser had gone to Davidson for two years from 19 excuse me 1853 to 1855, and I might add uh, did not like Davidson at that time, and then proceeded on to West Point for five years, in other words seven years as an undergraduate, which to me is cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> uh, I can I thought maybe I was you know a the best qualified person to to uh, to pursue Ramser in 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 this regard. So uh, that, that's what I did. I'm not a West Point graduate, but I obviously knew enough about the Army to have a respect for for the Academy and uh, to want to follow him down that trail as well.
1: Well, the the letters really are a rich collection, as, as Gary Gallagher uh, learned doing the biography. And he writes the introduction to this, or the forward to this book, uh, as, as readers will find out. Uh, one thing that struck me about the letters, you, you have a... a Introduction talking about the process of writing and where the letters are today. You used the the main collection of of Ramsar letters, but you also looked at some other collections. And you said one of these uh, collections uh, is was in a university library, but is now in private hands. And that really struck me because we, we read all the time about collectors donating their collections to libraries, but it's rare that a collection goes the other direction. Do you know anything about how that came about?
3: Well, I certainly do, and I agree with you. It's a, a rare situation in, in my experience as well. Um, the There are a number of, of places where either Rams' uh, official correspondence in military or his personal letters are found, but uh, the richest one, as you said, is at the Southern Historical Collection in the Wilson Library at Chapel Hill. And those letters... Consist of mainly of, of two parts: uh, letters to his uh, uh, cousin, then fiance, then wife Ellen Richmond, known as Nellie, and those are very personal and talk about the things that you know a man and a woman might talk about, looking forward to their marriage and so forth. And from the perspective of politics and and uh, and military affairs, the richer collection is to David Shank, who was. Ramser's, uh, childhood friend. He corresponded with him throughout the rest of his short life, and he told him things that he wouldn't tell Nellie, particularly, uh, when Nellie was pregnant. He didn't want to upset her. He would make comments on, on battles or, or his feelings about the war and so forth that were not, uh, uh shared with, with Nellie. Those letters were put in the Southern Historical Collection in 1930 by a descendant of Shanks. And so I'm sure the, the, the uh, archivists of the collection today, just as I did, figured they were there forever. I went to Chappahoe, I would say four times to, to get first to get copies of the letters and to get some uh, 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 microfilm of the letters, and then the last time to check about 200 words that were not clear to me from the copies I had. And if you want me to, I can explain how difficult it was to read the letters because they're written on both sides of the paper cross. Uh, and the ink bleeds through and everything else. So I went down there figuring if I could hold the letter up to the light, I could figure out some words as opposed to just putting illegible. The last time I went down there, I asked for the Shank letters, and they said, uh, well, we can't seem to find them. I said, what do you mean can't seem to find them? And they got the archivist out, the, the chief of the collection, and he said, last uh, August, the descendant of the individual who, who put these letters here in 1932, took them out of the collection and sent them to, uh, I believe it was uh, no Middleburg, Virginia, to have them appraised. They were appraised at $155,000, and then he brought them back to the collection in late summer and put them back in. He, the individual concluded by saying in November, he pulled them out a second time and sent them to a dealer in Florida. And so I said, how could he do that? And the individual said, well, apparently the letters were just loaned to the collection. They were not uh, bequeathed to the collection. And when I called that dealer in Florida and uh, asked if they were available, not intending to pay $155,000, but uh, wanting to know if they had been sold to a public institution, so I, again, could go chase down uh, mm-hmm. those are the 200 words that I, I hadn't already figured out, or to a private collector. I was told it was they were sold to a private collector, and uh, whose name you know shall remain anonymous. So they have disappeared from the public domain, and anyone who wants to read you know the entire collection of Ramses layers, and particularly in my view, the, the more important half, uh, needs to consult the uh, bravest of the brave, my, my book.
1: Wow. Well, it, it's fortunate for Civil War scholarship that you you got this task done when you did. But what a what an unfortunate story. That really is unusual. Uh, I, I, always teach my public history students, uh, the importance of legal documentation when you're accepting a, uh, any kind of gift or donation to your institution so that this kind of thing doesn't happen. Uh, that you document that it's an absolute gift. If you take it on loan, you don't know what's gonna happen. But that, that's a, that's really an unfortunate. Uh, but fortunately, you were able to get these letters. You mentioned they're hard to read. Uh, what what was Ramsay's handwriting like?
3: Well, his handwriting is is okay. I mean, as as with anyone's handwriting, after you look at it long enough, you you can you know work your way through it. But the, there are problems with it in the sense that, as I mentioned just briefly, and I won't go through this again, uh, when you have cross writing, which you know they did in the South because uh, paper was so uh, precious. So they wrote vertically and horizontally on the page, uh, and when you're using uh, ink or something that blend, bleeds through, and then of course some of the corners are, you know, uh, chewed off and whatnot. That makes it tough. It's also tough. Ramser got wounded twice during the war in his right hand. He was right-handed, so when he starts writing left-handed, that really uh, increases the level of difficulty. And in at least one later letter, he says to Nellie, uh, "You yeah, know, I'm in a hurry. I'm writing this in the saddle." Well. You, you know, we can just imagine how, uh, how good his writing was when he was in the saddle. So uh, all of that, plus using words like tittle, which, by the way, means a very small part or quantity, or mote, which means may or might, words that are certainly not in my vocabulary, but were in the vocabulary of a 19th century uh, writer. Uh, those all, uh, and oh, by the way, threw in some French and Latin words, which it took me about two or three years to figure out. Wait a this isn't English. I'm trying to figure out how this, this, this turns into an English word. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a foreign language, French and Latin, which he had studied, uh, first in, uh, in Lincoln and, and then uh, later at, at West Point and Davidson too, I suspect. So anyway, all that, uh, added up to, the largest problem in, in my estimation, which was uh, transcribing the letters, because I wanted to get them exact, not just close.
1: Now, as often happens with Civil War collections, we often have the letters that were sent home, but we rarely have letters sent from the home front to the soldier. Are, are there any extant letters from Nellie or from David Schenck or anyone else to there, Ramser
3: There aren't. Very many, and I, I re- regret that. Uh, I include in, in the book uh, the letter his mother sent to him when he first got to West Point, because he and his mother were extremely close. And uh, that letter is an especially warm one. And I include a letter that Nellie sent to him after uh, one of Ramses, uh, w- well, we could say his biggest mistake as a commander uh, at Rutherford, uh, Rutherford Farm when he was a, uh, a two-star general or and, uh, had made some, had made a big mistake, uh, tactically, which had been severely criticized in the, uh, in the Southern press. She's trying to reassure him. So I put that letter in there as well. There were some other letters from his mother that I might have included. I think one from his sister. But really, I, I think you could count on the fingers of both hands the letters to Ramser uh, during his lifetime. Now, after his, after he died, there are a lot of letters in that, in that file which are still there. To, to his wife, even as late as, uh, uh, what would be, 25 years after his death, from people who had served with him and people who remembered him and wanted to you know, let her know that he was still uh, important in, in their lives and in their minds. But there really is virtually nothing in terms of the letters sent to him.
1: Hmm. Well, that, that is not uncommon, of course, because the soldiers couldn't uh, carry the letters around uh, with them, and so it was hard to... Uh, hard for them to do that Uh, now we're going to take a short break now and uh, come back and and talk about Ramser's career as it unfolds in these letters Uh, our guest today is George G. Kundal editor of the Bravest of the Brave the correspondence of Stephen Dodson Ramser Uh, I'm Jerry Prokopovich and this is Civil War Talk Radio (music)
2: a link to your desktop or laptop, take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: Everyone has a belief system that they stand by. It's comfortable and safe. If you believe that a hot stove will burn you, you won't touch it. Sometimes beliefs like this are practical, but some belief systems may be protecting you a little too much. These are the ones that might be holding you back. There's a secret to changing your belief system. And by doing so, achieve goals and live a happier, better life. Start by tuning in to Subconscious Beliefs with Dr. Hein Lambrex, broadcasting live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearengin. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen, the world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with George G. Kundal, editor of The Bravest of the Brave, the correspondence of Stephen Dodson Ramser, uh-huh. a young Confederate Major General who left a fascinating series of letters to family and friends we talked in our first segment about the letters themselves how uh, the challenges of reading Civil War correspondence the fate of well, one collection of Ramser's letters reclaimed from a library uh, after many decades of uh, reposing there reclaimed by descendants of the original lender uh, the, the that kind of thing that strikes chills in the heart of the the researcher because you think if you've been looking at something for years in a university library or a public library that it belongs to the library and frequently the library thinks the same thing if it's been there long enough and when somebody shows up out of the woodwork and says i want those back i want to make a fortune it's uh it's not a happy day for anyone except briefly for the person who perhaps sells them and then they uh Doubtless suffer bad karma the rest of their lives uh, from for doing that, so nobody's happy but uh readers you'll be happy to uh, look at this book, which tells the fascinating story of of Ramzer's career. George, if we start at the beginning when uh you mentioned in our first segment, Ramzer spent uh, seven years in college, two at Davidson, but five at West Point uh, so he was one of the unlucky few who was at West Point during the five year curriculum, is that right? That's right. Uh, how did that? Uh, did he know he was in for five years?
3: Yeah, yeah. When he uh, Lee and was then the the superintendent, and when Jeff Davis was Secretary of War under uh, Franklin Pierce, they had decided that an additional year was was needed. We had just won the uh, Mexican War, and among other things, they wanted uh, the cadets to learn Spanish because many of them would serve on the southwest border, and then they thought things like geography and history and others, uh, uh, what we call them social science uh, disciplines, were important for them to be aware of because West Point at the time was the premier engineering school in America. In fact, when it was first established, it was the only engineering school, so they were very well-schooled in, uh, in math and engineering and science, but not so much in these other areas, which... Uh, they, which uh, the powers that be felt were were needed for a complete soldier, but of course, when the Civil War broke out, uh, they combined two classes in 1861—the one that should have gra- graduated then, and the one that should graduated in uh, 62—and uh, had them both graduate in 61, and got rid of the five-year program.
1: Well, as a history professor, I'm all in favor of extending things another year if they can add more history to the curriculum and social sciences generally, but. I don't think we're going to see that today, although I will say most of the undergraduates today are actually here on the six- or seven-year plan, uh, not out of laziness, but out of the uh, need to hold a job and do other things while they work their way through school. The uh, the The change came then after Ramser left, and it, it looks like uh, from the letters he, he thought they might change it for him. He was hoping to get out after four years. That's
3: right. There was a rumor that that would happen, but it did not materialize.
1: That must have been disappointing. The sectionalism of West Point was quite interesting. The you mentioned that the, uh, the the cadets themselves lived in separate barracks, depending if they were from the north or south. I, I did not know that.
3: Well, that developed in in the mid 50s when sectional rivalries became uh, more sharply defined. I mean, Ramsar, for example, was most concerned. About the election in, in 1856, uh, he was afraid Fremont would be elected, and uh, the the abolitionists or the Republicans would take charge. And he was already writing to his friend Shank about, you know, this does not look good for for 1860. And uh, as part of that, the uh, cadets started dividing themselves uh, consciously, you know, into to sectional groups. Whereas before, they had all been, you know, cadets uh, not caring where which, what's Part of the
1: country they came from. I mean, there's a lot of romanticization about that in uh, the Killer Angels and elsewhere of, of former comrades at West Point uh, reuniting on a battlefield uh, now as enemies, and uh, that prefigures what we'll see in, in Ramsey's own life. But but the way you describe the the immediate pre-war years, it was not quite so. Uh, uh, they're, they're already seeing the sectional conflict uh, coming up to them. Yeah, but, but Some... let, me,
3: let me just inject one thought. When he dies, he's 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 in uh, a union headquarters, headquarters of Phil Sheridan. And sh- sh- uh, at his bedside, he, he was mortally wounded on the 19th of October, 1864. He dies the following day. Coming to his bedside were two classmates from West Point, General Wesley Merritt. All these are Yankees, of course. General Wesley Merritt and uh, Colonel Alexander Pennington, and then two others from the following class, the class of 61, uh, George Custer and uh, Henry A. DuPont, who by the way, uh, uh, won the Medal of Honor at Cedar Creek where Ramser was mortally wounded and was a member of Congress for many, many years and spoke at the, uh, dedication ceremony to, to the Ramser Memorial, uh, at Cedar Creek. So, uh, that was, you know, uh, what, five, Year, four years after they had graduated, and these these uh, Union generals and, and Colonel thought enough of Ramsar to want to be there uh, with him when he died. It was also said that Sheridan came, but uh, I haven't found confirmation of that. Came to see him.
1: And I mean, that's the classic story that, that uh, you know, the Hancock Armistead kind of story where you, you see these former comrades in arms now. Uh, now enemies but then at the deathbed they they can reunite and uh, uh rejoin but in the letter describing that incident uh as you point out the the person uh, uh writing it uh to i think it's the person's writing it back to the family omits the fact that uh that, that some of these yankees were at Ramser's deathbed do i have that right
3: well, he, he does. He's the assistant adjutant General Hutchinson. He's writing to Nellie to try to assure her uh, that, uh, and as you read the very end of my book, there was a proper way to die in the middle of the 19th century. In fact, the, uh, uh, the president of Harvard has written a book about dying in the Civil War, where she makes a big point of this. And one of the things uh, Ramsar wanted to be sure was that uh, Nellie knew that his last thoughts were of her, and then he was very close friends with uh, Robert Hoke, Bob Hoke. I mean, they were just days apart in, in age. They had both grown up in, in uh, Lincolnton. And uh, he, he says something like, tell, tell Bob Hoke that I, you know, I died believing in God, you know, fighting for my country. So those kinds of remarks, as well as you know, sending uh, Nellie the watch and some other things, you know those were very important in in that era because obviously he was far preferred to have his wife holding his hand as he as he uh, passed out of this life
1: so so in one sense he, he dies of the 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 ideal soldier's death uh you know follows the conventions of the age does uh what he is expected what he hopes to be able to do but, I, again, what, what struck me was that in, in the years since then, uh, we, we've romanticized the West Point connection where we, we talk about that. And as you describe in your book, the, the people like Merritt and Custer and uh, Pennington and DuPont show up uh, to, to show their respect for Ramser. But at the time, that that is not there. Uh, that The letter home to Nellie doesn't say, your husband was reunited with old comrades. Uh, the Yankees are not to be mentioned in that letter.
3: Well, that's that's my explanation. I mean, uh, they were, he did he did say, you may recall, Hutchinson does say, but he was um, among friends, and I think there was an orderly as well as Hutchinson who was allowed to stay with, with Ramsey to the very end. In fact, at one point he was treated by his surgeon, but uh, a, a northern surgeon really was the one who treated him once he got to the headquarters. But he, he wanted, again, Nellie to think that he was among friends, uh, in terms of those wearing the gray, not, and Nellie wouldn't have known these West Point individuals anyway, because that was long before they, they were married. So.
1: Well, that's true. They would not have had the same connection. But, uh, going back to the, then to the West Point days, the, another issue we sometimes see in, in, in Civil War Writing sort of cliche is the the anguished decision of the West Point officer, the oath to the Constitution or loyalty to the state. Uh, Lee's decision to leave, uh, George Thomas's decision to stay. Uh, it's an anguished moment. Uh, Ramser doesn't seem to have had any hesitation.
3: Well, I I, uh, I don't know that I would would state it that that uh, succinctly. Uh, one thing I wanted to say before this conversation ends, and I doubt you're sure. going to ask me the question, so I'm just going to throw it out right now. Please the do. Tit- the, the title of this book, The Bravest of the Brave, is a horrible title, and I can say that because I'm the one <laughs> who picked it. And where did it come from? Well, first of all, the, the University of North Carolina Press didn't want to call it the letters of dodson Ramsey because that wasn't going to sell many books. That's right. So I, I look uh, in, in what, again, David Shank, his best friend, said in his diary, which is, uh, still at, at uh, Chapel Hill, uh, on the day he heard that Ramser had died. And he makes the comment, he's you know, he's gone from us, the bravest of the brave, quote-unquote. Okay, I went into Amazon a couple years ago and typed in bravest of the brave because this book is available on Amazon. And there were something like 27 titles, 27 books with that as a title or, or subtitle. So it's really it's a hackneyed phrase that I never would have used. What this book should have been called is the primacy of duty. And it gets exactly to where to where you were are 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 going. Mm-hmm. The the values in Ramser's life in this order were first faith in a loving God and he there's virtually no letter he writes to Nelly where he doesn't mention God. God's gonna get us through this, God will bring us together, all that. Secondly, his sense of duty to his country. Now first that duty was to the United States. When he went to West Point, and you may recall it, DHL was his math uh, professor, Davidson and DHL, uh, uh, was the only professor Davidson uh, Ramsar liked, and he wrote a recommendation, which, if you read, was the, you know it was like uh, damning him with faint praise, but it was enough to help get him into West Point. Uh, so he was very loyal to 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 the blue, while there was a United States of America. But when the Confederate States were formed, just like Robert E. Lee, when Virginia seceded, Lee could not fight against Virginia and I think Ramsher had the same feeling about fighting against North Carolina and then his third sense of duty by the way it was to his family uh, both his wife in anticipation of birth and children and the family in uh, in, uh, in Lincoln so when I say the primacy of duty he, he wanted to go home when he was at Davidson at one point His father sent a letter and said we send him home for a, a religious ceremony that was taking place one Sunday and Davidson no more than 20 miles from Lincoln. the faculty talked him out of going, told him it would be bad for his study of Greek. His father files for bankruptcy in 1857. The, the, the family's going bankrupt. Ramser has eight brothers and sisters. One brother's in medical school, another's in Philadelphia, another's daughter is uh, up there in college. And uh, so they were destitute, really. They lost their home and everything else. He wanted to go down there. He was ready to leave the, the military, but he stayed because that was his duty. Uh, when Shank, his best friend, marries Sally, one of his... Uh, uh... sisters in august of 1859, and then a couple months later when his mother died in november of fifty nine you can be sure ramsa wanted to be in lincoln for those two uh, ceremonies but he didn't go he stayed where he was because that was his duty and then finally my final example he set to be married to Nellie on the sixteenth of september eighteen sixty three now for those of us that are married we know a wedding is pretty important to a wife we'd like to think it's important to the to the groom as well as the bride he postpones that wedding twice, later in September, and then they finally get married in October, because, as he tells Nellie, my duty requires that I stay here in Virginia. So, I, you know, were I to do it again, I would call this book The Primacy of Duty, because I think that's the code of, of uh, Ramser's life.
1: Well, that, that really touches on uh, a lot of the the key points of his life and that would be a good title. The Bravest of the Brave I, It's really a fine title, and the book has a very handsome cover, but I, I know what you're saying when, when something has been used elsewhere, it, it does uh, get in the way sometimes. I want to ask you a question about uh, Ramser's values that you've just laid out very eloquently, but we'll take a short break and come back and talk about that in just a minute. We're talking about Stephen Dodson Ramser and talking with... George G. Kundal, editor of The Bravest of the Brave. I'm Jerry Prokopovich and we'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs>
0: Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is helped from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Want to know
2: what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host?
0: You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with George Kundal, who's the editor of The Bravest of the Brave, the correspondence of Stephen Dodson Ramser. And before I forget, let me let listeners know uh that our guest today, George Kundal, is also the author of Confederate Engineer, the training training and campaigning with John Morris Wampler. Uh, this is from the University of Tennessee press. And Alexandria Goes to War, which looks at uh, Alexandria, Virginia, uh, two other uh, books, both of interest. There's never enough time to talk about everything on Civil War Talk Radio, but I wanted to get that in. Uh, yeah. If you can get hold of uh, uh, the, the Braves to the Brave, you, listeners, you'll enjoy that. And if you enjoy that, you'll want to look at these other books as well.
3: George, George let, let, me, me let, at, let me... Oh, go, let me go ahead, George. please. Let me correct you on one thing. This Alexandria goes to war is yet again another misnomer by me. It should be Alexandrians go to war because it's, as one reviewer called it, a a, uh, biographical anthology. I cover 15 figures who were connected with Alexandria who went off to support the the Southern cause in various ways, starting with Robert E. Lee, who grew up in Alexandria. Now, I don't tell the whole story of Lee. I just talk about his connections with Lee before and after the war. But I've got Samuel Cooper. I've got his son, Custis Lee. I've got it arranged by how they contributed. So, for example, I've got a spy, a scout, an engineer, uh, an immigrant, a chronicler after the war. I've got uh, naval officers and a presidential aide. Uh, it's really uh, done so well that this is the first of my books that has been put out in a second edition in paperback, which has just come out. So it's really Alexandrians go to war, and uh, I think it's probably for the for the uh, general reader the most interesting of the three
1: well the uh, as I look at, it, I actually went to our university library after you and I talked, and I pulled a copy of it. Uh, Alexandria goes to war the subtitle beyond Robert E. Lee, and the fifteen chapters do indeed touch on all these other uh, very interesting historical characters and the general reader. May well want to start with that, uh, but George, today we're talking to the Civil War talk radio audience, and sure. they're going to want to go to Ramsey's correspondent. Sure, correspondence. No, I'm very
3: happy to talk Rams. We've,
1: yes, we've got the. Uh, 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 this is not a general audience. This is a uh, a specialized audience, which is sure. fun because we can talk about someone like Ramsey without having to go into explaining what the uh, the Confederacy was it. or anything. But sure. let me let me. uh push back on something you said in our previous section, we're talking about uh, Ramsay's values, the primacy of duty above all you comment on. Uh, one of his values that comes out very, very clearly in these letters is uh, his religious uh, sensibility. He's very uh, uh, devout. He writes frequently to Nelly of the importance of uh, faith and his confidence that uh, the Lord is on the side of the Confederacy. For all that he uh, uh, writes things like, just almost opening at random on page 27, uh, and now, my dearest, Nelling darling of my heart, goodbye. May God bless us and protect us and soon unite us in love to serve him. Then we turn a page and we see him writing uh, to his brother, uh uh, where he says, uh, I have thought of selling Ned. If the rascal does not come up square up to the exact line of duty, I think he ought to be shipped at once. At present prices, he ought to bring $1,500. If that sum can be had for him, I say unhesitatingly, let him slide. Well, you know, Ned maybe had a wife he loved as much as, as Ramser loved Nellie. But Ramser's quite willing to sell Ned off, uh, a human being, not an animal, uh, tomorrow. If it will, you know, help if Ned's not sufficiently pleasing, and what that raises for me is the question of, of people like Ramsar and in, in general, they're not evil people. Obviously, they're they're not hypocritical in their faith, yet they have this enormous blind spot toward human slavery uh, because of the the world they grew up in. And as I read this book, it really brought home to me. I wonder, do we have something in our world where we're just as blind? I I don't know, but. Did, did you have any reaction to that kind of thing as you edited these letters?
3: Well, let me let me uh, yeah, make a couple points on slavery. You, you, since you've read the book, you know that when he was at Davidson, which is arguably a, a religious pinnacle, and one reason he didn't like Davidson, he didn't think they were religious enough at, at mm-hmm. He was raised by his mother, who was a Presbyterian, and Davidson was a Presbyterian school. Uh, and he talked about the wickedness of buying Negroes, quote unquote, yes. in 1853. Okay, three That's years right. later. He's up at West Point, and he makes another reference to slavery, and he calls it the greatest blessing for master and slave. Now, this is 1856 when, as I said earlier, uh, the country's revving up with this very uh, contentious election uh, where uh, abolition is kind of in the background. Mm -hmm. Now, he bought and sold slaves. Uh, As you point out, uh, Nellie's father had uh, over 30 slaves, most of them field hands. Uh, He had a manservant, uh, Caesar, who came up with him, and serve, uh or, or help served him as as a servant, as a slave, for the last uh, part of his campaigning. What's interesting about that, Jerry, is that in the 186 excuse me 1870 census, Caesar is identified as Caesar Ramser. So I think we can assume that he certainly treated Caesar well. This other uh, uh, black that he is, is uh, you know, considering selling. Uh, for whatever reason, displeased Ramsar, but, uh, in, in the case of Caesar, he did care a, about him enough that Caesar was, was willing to, to uh, accept him, his last name. So, uh, do we have that kind of thing today? Uh, uh, I don't know. Certainly we have, uh, as, as you know, we have, uh, immigrants, legal and illegal, that come into this country, and they're sometimes treated as second class citizens. If they're illegal, uh, you know, we really can't consider them citizens, but that's a whole nother radio show.
1: Well, it is, absolutely, and, and I didn't really, don't want us to, to stray into contemporary issues, but I, I guess what, what struck me was was that the character of Ramser clearly emerges from these letters. Uh, duty is obviously uh, primary with him. His his faith obviously means a great deal to him. Uh, his loyalty to his friends, to his family, to his, his wife, uh, to his cause, to his state, these are all admirable traits that he has in, in great measure. And, and at the same time, because it's so much part of the, the world he grew up in, he accepts uh, or comes to accept slavery as, as just a, a part of the world. It's made even more poignant by the fact that you just related that as a young man, he questioned the, uh, the morality of buying and selling human beings.
3: Well, Jerry, one, one week ago to this very minute, I was at Charlottesville, in, at Monticello, and I spent mm-hmm. a good afternoon there. And at the end, I'm talking to one of their docents, uh, and I talked to him for 30 minutes. He's a very educated guy, and I said, you know, we spent 20 of these 30 minutes talking about Jefferson's relationship to slavery, and we're forgetting all of the great things, all great principles Jefferson had. Because we're applying 21st century values to a 19th century man. And I don't think that's uh, that's fair to Jefferson, because I consider him uh, one of our greatest presidents. And this guy and I agreed that he was probably the smartest of our presidents. So I think by applying our 21st century values to Ramser, uh, if he were beating the slaves and whatnot, then we could take a different uh, approach, I would say, because you don't want to do that this to isn't. any person, no matter what color his skin. But the institution of slavery wasn't considered the same in 18th 60s as it is
1: today no and i'm not don't want to be misunderstood as condemning him for for living in the world he lived in but it fascinates me that that world could exist uh just as you can go back in in human history to other centuries and find practices that individuals engaged in because that's what everybody did at the time and, and it was seen as normal and natural and you know, human society has evolved over the, the millennia where we don't do things that our our ancestors did routinely. Uh, but we do other things. But so it just, it, I found it fascinating that, 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 to see this contrast in him, but I definitely am not trying to, to make that, that argument that he should be condemned for it. And I also agree that it, it's a small part of this book and not one that should overly absorb us, uh, in terms yeah, of looking at the whole of his life. Let me ask you, uh, and we don't have too much time left, about Ramsar as a military commander. Uh, you alluded briefly to one disaster that his troops suffered, but he also had some great battlefield successes. Uh, since the letters, you let the letters speak for themselves, you don't editorialize much in this book. But well, I, I, ask you I, here, I
3: tried to at the beginning, but UNC Press wanted me to do that, let them speak for themselves. So you're absolutely right.
1: So Well, well here's your chance. What, what do you think of him as a military commander?
3: Okay. Well, I would say, as as a uh, regimental commander, as a brigade commander, he he was excellent, and that's why he was promoted so quickly. He was he drilled when he was first a uh, commander of a of a battery in, in Raleigh. He drilled his men incess- incessantly. He uh, uh, had them well disciplined on the battlefield. He was concerned about their well being, he stressed food, uh, good food and cleanliness in the in the camp, because a lot of these guys when they come together you know bring germs with them. So in that sense he was he was uh he was very good. In the heaviest combat he was at the front of his troops. At Chancellorsville, at Spotsylvania at, in the Bloody Angle, at Third Winchester, he was up front. In fact, the day he was shot, as you know, he had two horses shot out from under him. He's climbing on his third horse and he and he gets uh he gets uh, uh, mortally wounded at Gettysburg at uh, the one engagement he had at Gettysburg on the first day. He's the only person on the field on a horse. You know, if you're a, uh, a federal soldier, you, you don't have to uh, guess as to which guy do I want to shoot. It's, it's Ramser. So he led from the front as opposed to others who we know who led from the, the, the rear. When he got up to be a division commander, he started take, becoming a risk taker. And he did so with mixed success because there were these two examples. I call it Rutherford's Ford, it's also called Stevenson's Depot, and Bethesda Church, I guess, were his two low points. But if you consider that he was promoted to major general at the age of 27 and one day, the day after his 27th birthday, he was the youngest West Point graduate to achieve that rank in the Confederate Army. Now, you can see that means he was really a good a uh, general officer up to the division level or you could say by that point in the war that the the south was getting so uh desperate for 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 leaders you know they their ranks had been so uh, depleted during the fighting over the first 3 years that uh, that's why Rams rose to the top so quickly but i think uh for most of his career he was an exceptional uh commander
1: he he certainly leads from the front he was wounded numerous times not just uh, the fatal four wounding times.
3: Yeah, four, four times, times? The fourth
1: one, uh, critically, yeah. At, at uh, Chancellorsville, he led his brigade literally over the top of another Confederate brigade, which you uh, wrote afterward. It was the Stonewall Jackson's old brigade had failed to move, and he had to leave them behind, and he criticized them, uh, which well, shows both that he was a, a forward leader, but also uh, not afraid of controversy.
3: Well, the 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 Stonewall Brigade obviously had a, uh, a great reputation, and uh, Ramsar didn't do this just in, impetuously. And and if you were criticizing him, you'd say sometimes he was too impetuous in these two instances when when he he suffered losses at Stevenson's uh, Depot and Bethesda. He he didn't uh, wasn't cautious enough. But in this case, he went back a couple of times to his division commander and said, you know, these soldiers are lying down ahead of me. They won't go. I've ordered them to, to advance because I've been told to advance. They won't do anything. So he told his men to climb up on over them. And, you know, your readers can go to the, uh, the state archives in Raleigh and read the correspondence between Ramsar and the commander of that, that outfit who claimed those weren't my soldiers. And Ramser's response to that is, hey, I asked more than one of them, who, what unit do you belong to? And they, the, everyone I asked at the Stonewall
1: Brigade. Uh, in, uh, I'm trying to remember, in, in, in the book about the Stonewall Brigade, Robertson's book, does he talk about that incident?
3: Well, uh, I, don't remember, I don't remember reading the book about the Stonewall Brigade. I read his book about the Stonewall Jackson. But you see, Jackson had died the day before this incident took place.
1: So that's true. so they were not... This, was, uh, this the, was
3: on the 3rd of May, and, J- and Jackson had been shot. He hadn't died yet. He died on the 7th of May, but he had uh, he'd been mortally wounded on the 2nd and wasn't in command. Stuart was the overall commander on that third day when uh, Ramser's men are climbing over the Stonewall Brigade. Yeah.
1: So so we see Ramser leading from the front again and again, from uh, Malvern Hill to Chancellorsville, uh, Gettysburg, Wilderness, uh, the Shenandoah Valley in 1864, and uh, there he does meet his end. Do you know anything are there Rams or descendants? Did you in- encounter anything like that in your research? Uh
3: I I didn't. And uh just to digress for for one instant to the matter we talked about at great length in the first half of the show, uh had I found a Rams or descendant? He theoretically would have been the owner of those letters that disappeared. Ah. It wouldn't have been Shank. If I write you a letter, I wrote the letter. It's my letter, even though you happen to hold it. Now, mm-hmm. Congress passed a, a law in, in 1977, which helps us historians because we don't have to chase down Ramses' ascendant. The Ramser and his wife had one one child. He never knew what gender she was, as you as you know, because he was killed mm-hmm. the day after she was born, or two days after. Her name was Mary Dodson Ramser. She had no issue. She spent the rest of her life, she died in her in her 50s, uh, promoting and defending, you know, the reputation of her father. So I would be looking for some kind of distant cousin, you know, distant nephew or something mm. like that. But in 77, Congress said, hey, after 25 years or 2002, or 75 years, excuse me, or 2002, whichever comes first, uh, this, these kinds of documents are in the public domain. So I don't have to worry. I, I was initially very worried about uh, using documents for, which were then held by a private individual, but uh, that law uh, protects me from being uh, from being sued.
1: Well, that that's uh, works to your benefit and to uh, all scholars' benefit and to all readers' benefit. George, we are out of time as happens too soon each week here on Civil War Talk Radio. But thank you very much for being on the show.
3: Well, it's been my pleasure. I've enjoyed chatting with you.
1: And listeners, you will want to get a copy of The Bravest of the Brave, the correspondence of Stephen Dodson Ramser, edited by George Kundal. It's from University of North Carolina Press. You'll enjoy it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
0: For listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com.